chapter 5. We're going to finish the chapter finally today. This is the message, I think, in, in Luke's Gospel. Last week, the, the title was The Outcasts Are In. Uh, we looked at the fact that Jesus was hanging out with all the wrong people. He was hanging out with the, the marginalized. He was hanging out with the, the demon-possessed and the leper and the paralyzed guy and the tax collector. All the people who would not have been allowed into the temple. All of the people who were pushed to the outside of society and were not welcomed and embraced. And Jesus is just loving being with them, sharing meals with them and seeing their lives transformed. And we left him last week uh, at a, a feast in Levi's house. Levi was a tax collector. And uh, let me just read last week's passage and then we'll get into this week's passage to, to set the context. So Luke chapter 5, starting from verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Let's just pray before we get into it. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this beautiful, beautiful day. Thank you for the blue sky. Thank you for the colors in the trees. Thank you for the birds singing. Thank you for the breath in our lungs, Lord. Thank you, Father, for the, the freedom to be together. We pray, Father, for those this morning who would love to be together but are currently restricted from doing so. God, will you help them? Will you be with them? Will you encourage them in their homes and wherever they are? And Lord, as we dig into your word today, will you bless it, Father? Will you bless us? May your spirit move and bring life into our hearts in response to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Pharisees are there. They're at dinner. These guys just keep on showing up all the time. And they're at Levi's house. And they say to, to Jesus, or they say to, yeah, they say to Jesus in verse 33, John's disciples fast and pray regularly, and the Pharisees' disciples fast and pray regularly. Why are you not fasting? And why are your disciples not fasting? Now, we need to sort of go into the background a little bit to understand why they were fasting if we're going to actually see the impact then of what Jesus actually says to them in response. The reason they were fasting was because they wanted God to come back among his people. Whenever you read in the Old Testament, you will read about a period of time called the exile. 
It is not just some insignificant point of history for theologians or Bible nerds to know about. It is very, very important in the history of the people of God. Because they were taken away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, away from the presence of God, and they were brought in exile to Babylon for 70 years. And at the end of that 70-year period, some of them came back to Jerusalem. Not all of them. Some of them came back. They started to rebuild the temple. They started to rebuild the walls of the city. But it's really, really important to understand that the exile, and get this because this is vital for understanding Jesus, the exile never ended. Even though they had physically, geographically come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, they were never free. They were always under the oppression of foreign rulers, whether that was the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Medes, whoever it was. They were always, always under foreign rule. The exile never ended. And the reason that they went into exile was because of sin. Two great sort of periods in the history of, of Israel in the Old Testament, two huge stories of deliverance. There is the exodus and the exile. The exodus, they were not there because of sin. They were there because of an oppressive leader called Pharaoh. But the exile, they were there because of sin. They had engaged in idolatry and they had forsaken the Sabbath and they were in exile because of sin. And what God has repeatedly tells them he's going to do through the prophets at that time is that he's going to bring them back. And he's going to once again be among his people. His presence will be with them again. He's going to forgive them for the sins that led them into exile. He's going to bring them back into his presence. And what the Pharisees were doing and John the Baptist's disciples at this time, they were fasting They were mourning the fact that God's presence was not with them and they were fasting in preparation for God to come. They did it twice a week, Monday and Thursday. They fasted 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then they probably hit the Doritos at 6 p.m. and all the other stuff they've been craving all day long. And if you ever done that, you fasted and then after you're finished, you just stuff yourself silly. Yeah. Um, So they, they did this twice a week. And uh, there's, there's a really good chance that the day that Jesus is feasting at Levi's house with all of the outcasts is one of the fast days when all the good Jews were fasting. Yeah, he probably was there and that's, that probably really, really offended them. They were waiting for the return of God to be among his people. They were waiting for the forgiveness of sins. One of the things that I've sort of started to understand a wee bit more in the last year or so by by reading a few of Tom Wright's books was that the, the, the term forgiveness of sins, when you read that in the New Testament, forgiveness of sins, don't replace it, but alongside it read the end of exile because that's what the people were waiting for, to have their sins forgiven so that the exile would end and they would once again be in the presence of God. God once again in the midst of his people. And one of the images that they used for it was the image of marriage. There's loads of verses in the, in the prophets, but here's, here's just one or two examples. In Isaiah 62, 
God speaks to his people and says, No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. You see, Hephzibah means my delight is in her and Beulah means married. And when the people were separated from God, the other nations would say of them, God has abandoned you. God has left you. You're no longer married to God. You're not connected to God anymore. Your idolatry has separated you from him. And God says to them, no, a time is coming when you will be called Beulah. You will be called married. That's one of the promises that they're waiting for. This is Isaiah 62. The Pharisees know Isaiah 62 and with real sincerity, they are fasting and saying, God, come and marry your people. Come and be among us once again. And verse 5 of Isaiah 62 leads on with that same imagery. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That's what's in their, in their thinking. We want a wedding. We want a wedding. We want God to come and marry his people. That's the image that's in their mind that they're longing for. That's why they are fasting. Let me show you one more example. I love these verses in Jeremiah this is Jeremiah 33, verses 10 and 11. Listen again for the imagery. This is what the Lord says. I love these verses. I just, these verses are in my heart for this time. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, Inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and bridegroom. The people are desolate, the cities and the streets are desolate and ruined, and they are longing for a time when God says, in your streets there will be a marriage celebration. There will be a bride and a groom, there will be singing and there will be praise celebration. There's going to be a wedding in the future. This is Jeremiah writing at the time of the exile. And that's what the people were longing for. Now, look at what Jesus says in response to the criticism that he's not fasting. He's not joining in with the preparation. He's not joining in with the mourning. He's not sincerely seeking for God to come and marry his people. Jesus, why are you not doing what you should be doing? Why are you not fasting? Don't you know there's a promise that God is going to come and marry his people? And Jesus says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Bang! That is earth shattering to the Pharisees because Jesus has just said to them, you know the thing you're waiting for. You're waiting for God to come as a bridegroom and to be in the midst of his people, to bring joy and celebration, to bring the end of exile and the forgiveness of sins. He says, well, it's here. <laughs> this is it. I'm here. This is a wedding. All right. The, the, the feast 
at you know at the at the previous passage in in Luke chapter five, that feast is not any old feast. It's a wedding. There's no bride and groom there in terms of it being an actual real wedding. But as far as Jesus is concerned, this is a wedding feast because the bridegroom has come among his people, among his bride. So this is not any old feast. This is a wedding. And it's not any old wedding. This is the wedding that God has been promising to his people for centuries. Do people fast at a wedding? Can you imagine? You know? What, what is the high point? Now, be honest with me. Be honest with me. The high point of a wedding. If you're a guest at a wedding, uh, you'd love to be all noble and say the high point is when the bride comes in through the doors of the church. And if it's you getting married, that's the high point. Um, or if it's a close family member, that's maybe the high point. But if you're, if you're just a sort of, you know, cousin <laughs> and you're there, that's not the high point. Um, and the high point is not at eight o'clock or half eight at night when the bands start to play the gambler again. And you can only listen to that at weddings so many times before you crack up and descend into a life of gambling to deal with the trauma of it. And you can't hear anyone speak. You bump into someone you haven't seen in 15 years and you can't actually have a conversation because it's so loud. That's not the high point of the day. The high point of the day, gentlemen, what is the high point? Not for the groom now, please. What is the high point of the day if you're a guest at a wedding? Come on. Grub. Grub. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Food. <laughs> it's when the feasting begins. That's the high point. That's the time of joy and there's just a room full of chatter and banter and crack and life and, and the food is coming and nobody sits and says politely to the waiter, oh no, I'm fasting today. No, 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 it's a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. Everybody wants to celebrate at a wedding. And the fasting is not the problem. Jesus says that there will, be, there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away. And they will fast again. But fasting will be different. Fasting in the Christian age, in the church age, is not a fasting of mourning. It's a fasting of just putting everything to one side and say, God, I need you more than anything. More than my very food. I want you. I want your presence. I want your voice. He says they will fast. He fasted himself. He taught about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't have a problem with fasting. The problem was that the religious guys couldn't see what was going on right in front of them. They refused to accept it because religion blinds people. And what God is doing becomes veiled to them because of their religious mindsets and their religious hearts. God was doing a new thing. God was doing a new thing. He promised in Isaiah 43, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not see it? <laughs> and the Pharisees didn't see it. Jesus is the new thing. Nothing new will come after him. Okay, when, when God says, I'm doing a new thing, the new thing is Jesus. The new thing is the spirit, the presence of God now within people. 
actually within them, transforming them from within. That's the new thing. The new thing is a church, a global church of people of faith, not not just descended by blood from Abraham, but people of faith who are part of the family of God by faith. That's the new thing. The new thing is the forgiveness of sins. That's the new thing. And Jesus, you know, the, the, the Pharisees can't see it. Do you not perceive it? Can you not see it? They couldn't. They couldn't see the bridegroom among them. That was God's new thing. And God will not do another new thing like that until the new heavens and the new earth, the restoration of all things. Now, we'll talk a bit later about how he does new things in our lives and new things in his church. But in terms of the new thing that Isaiah is talking about, the new thing is Jesus. That's it. There's no new thing, Mark 2. The new thing is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the church, the new covenant. And Jesus goes on then in in verses 36 to 39, which is where we'll stop today. He goes on to talk a little bit about new things. Two illustrations that he uses. The first one, he says in verse 36, No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. Now, I buy cheap shirts. Okay, (laughs) I buy, does anybody else buy cheap shirts? I love a cheap shirt. I love a sort of three shirts for £18 special offer in Marks and Spencer's at the Boulevard. I love it. And the reason I love it is, is, is not because I'm tight. It might be a little bit tight sometimes when I'm, when I'm spending money on myself. Um, but the reason I love it is because shirts don't always last me that long. Because I work with nasty stuff in a chemistry lab. And the nastiest stuff that, that is used on a regular basis is sodium hydroxide. Uh, now get a wee taste of that on a shirt and the shirt's going in the bin. One splash, that's it. It's gone. And uh, so therefore I buy cheap shirts. I don't buy expensive shirts and wear them to work because they might only last a week. Now can you imagine if I bought myself a shirt and I got a wee splash of sodium hydroxide on it and uh, Sodium hydroxide is sticky stuff. It doesn't put a hole in it straight away. It's after it comes out of the wash that the hole appears. And you think you're okay and you've got away with it and then you take your shirt out of the wash and there's a hole in it. But can you imagine me having a shirt with a hole in it and then thinking, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to the shop. I'll buy a new shirt. I will cut a piece of the new shirt out and I will patch the hole on the old shirt. Is that not stupid? That is stupid. That's why Jesus says no one does this. No one goes and buys a new shirt and cuts a whack out of it to to fix the old one. That is stupid. And the point that he is making is you cannot mix. Now this is important. And 2,000 years after Jesus, you'd think the church would get this, but we don't. You cannot mix the new thing that God is doing in Jesus and in the Spirit. You can't Mix it with the old ways of religion, of trying as hard as you can, of keeping all the rules and going through all the regulations. You can't mix the two of them together. You just 
can't do it. It is a, to, to try to do it is as foolish as cutting up a new shirt to try to patch up an old one. You can't do it. And yet we still do. <laughs> we still do. Possibly one of the greatest just long-running perennial problems of the church is that tendency to try to mix the old of religion with the new of the kingdom of God. Cannot do it. They don't mix. And note as well that this this, uh, offer of a garment, again, is something that the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament. This is Isaiah 61, verse 10. Listen to the language that, that Isaiah uses. I delight greatly in the Lord, My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And if the language of garments is not enough for you, Isaiah's also got the language of a wedding. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. God gives us a garment of salvation, not a patch, okay? Not just a, a band-aid, not just to cover over. We all patch things from time to time and hope we get away with it. I'm sure some of you have, have headed over to the MOT center with a wee patch somewhere on the chassis or on the underside of the car uh, trying to cover up a wee hole that you'll not get away with, yeah? We try to patch things. God does not offer a patch. Jesus is not saying to the religious people of his time, I'm here to give you a patch to put on to your religion. And he is not offering you or me a patch for the brokenness in our lives. Not a patch. Listen to the language that Paul uses. The, the, the old garments that we used to wear, the way we used to live, and the religious practices that we used to engage in, Paul says, you have taken off your old self. You wore a garment, your old way of living, your religious lifestyle. And Paul says in Colossians 2.9, you've taken it off. And then... Uh, you know, you, you think as well, just as, a, as, as, a, as an illustration of that, there's a lovely story in, in Mark, I think it's in chapter 10, of a guy called Bartimaeus, son of uncleanness was his name. He was a beggar and he was blind and Jesus healed him. And there's a tiny little fact in there in the description of that story. It says, Bartimaeus left his cloak and followed Jesus because his cloak was what he would lay on the ground for people to put money in as they walked past. His cloak identified him as a beggar. And he's not a beggar anymore. He did not get up and follow Jesus and say, I'm going to still be a beggar and follow Jesus. No, the beggar, the coat, came off and was left behind. So whenever we come to faith, when we come to Jesus, we're not patching up an old garment, we're taking it off. And then Romans 13, verse 14 You put on a new garment, and that garment is Jesus himself. Put off the old 
and put on the new. Discard the garment and get a new one. Don't try to fix it because the two don't mix. So there's the new garment that's offered in in verse 36 of chapter 5. And then there is the new wine. Listen to this. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Again, this is rooted in the Old Testament. Joel wrote and various other prophets wrote about a future time when there would be an abundance of new wine. When you read about wine in the Bible, you're not reading about tonic wine being consumed from the bottle in large quantities for people to get drunk as quick as they can. That's not what it's about. It is about celebration, okay? It is a special thing. It's a treat. They would have drank it at the Passover. They would have drank it at the wedding at Cana. It was a celebratory thing. It was not a thing abused and mistreated by the majority of people. And the promise of the future was that there would be new wine. In fact, the mountains would drip with it. (laughs) Could there be any larger scale way of thinking about a vast quantity of new wine than the mountains themselves dripping with it? That was the promise in Joel 3.18 and in other places. And Jesus, again, just like he said with the the shirt with the hole in it, no one buys a new shirt, chops it up to fix an old one. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Yet just don't do it. Now, a wineskin was a bit gross. It was an animal skin. I was going to put a picture up, but it's really a bit bit minging. So a a wineskin was made from the skin of an animal, And over time, what would happen is the skin would age and would become brittle. And look at that there. Ah, bit of chemistry has infiltrated the presentation this morning. That would be glucose on the left-hand side. And on the right-hand side, that would be ethanol and carbon dioxide. That's the process of fermentation. And... The reason that I have put that up there is for you to understand that when that process takes place, when wine is being produced by fermentation, the carbon dioxide produced is a gas. And gases cause expansion. And if you have new wine that has not completely fermented, finished fermenting, and you put it into a wine skin that is brittle and hard, once a wee bit more carbon dioxide is produced... Bang. (laughs) That's two bangs in one morning. It just explodes. The wineskin cannot handle the expansion. It cannot handle the sheer life that is in the wine that's being put into it. And so the wineskin itself will split. And if you're going to invite Jesus into your life, I think sometimes we lead people to faith and we don't. Maybe tell them fully what they're getting into. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to embrace this new thing, this life in the Spirit, you better be prepared for massive change. (laughs) Massive change. Not a patch, 
Not a wee taste into the old wineskin, but a massive change. And just like you can't patch up the old garment with a little bit of Jesus, you cannot contain this message of the kingdom in an old wineskin, in an old mindset, in an old religious way of doing things. It must be replaced. It must be replaced or you will not contain the new vibrant life that Jesus wants to put within you. And Jesus says again in the last verse, another no one. No one fixes a shirt by chopping up a new shirt. No one puts new wine into old wineskins and no one, this is a negative point now, no one after drinking old wine wants the new for they say the old is better. A few weeks ago, Nigel was speaking and he talked about change and how people struggle with change. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. It's hard to do discipleship with someone that's been saved for 20 or 30 years and just suddenly say, let's do discipleship because they have, they're in a way of doing things and in a pattern. And when something new comes, they just say, ah, no, I don't want this. The old is better. I don't want change. Change spooks me. Change scares me. I want just to stay in my comfort zone. Jesus says no one who has had the old wants the new. They just want to stick with the old. Tom Wright, who gets a wee quote most weeks, um, he says, don't expect those who have given their lives to the old movements to be happy about switching allegiance This is a perennial problem faced by all reformers. When God gets a hold of someone to do something new, not to change the new thing of Jesus and life and the spirit and forgiveness of sins, not to tinker with that, but to do something new in terms of how they maybe connect with the community, how the church is expressed locally, how how, how leadership is done. When God gets a hold of someone to do something new, there will always be those who just don't want to shift. (laughs) don't want to move with it, don't want to change, don't want to give their allegiance to something different from what they've already known. And there are, I think, a couple of different ways that we can apply this and think about new things. When Jesus says about the new and the old, you don't put the new wine into an old wineskin. Here's something that I think is a very wrong way to understand this passage. This does not mean we criticize what has gone before us. Jesus could not, not in a million years, not a sniff of a chance was Jesus saying this so that people who are all sort of sparkly and new about how they do church could criticize those who have gone before. Don't do that. (laughs) Give thanks for what has gone before. Give thanks for the different expressions of church that there are. Give thanks for those who love the old stuff and for those who love the new stuff. Don't use these verses to criticize other people who do things a little bit differently. That is not what Jesus meant. Not for a moment, okay? Be thankful for those generations that have carried the baton before us and carry it still. So I think that's a wrong way to to apply it. And it's one thing that I have to say I'm, I'm quite proud of here. I don't overhear people criticizing other churches. And that's a good thing because it's a horrible thing to criticize other churches. Mm-hmm. A horrible thing. 
I, um, anytime, I haven't done it for a year or two, but I used to have a, like a Bible study class in school for sixth formers. And at the start of each year of, of working with a new group, I basically said to them, there are two routes. There are only two routes. One, the scripture is the final word. We, we can discuss things and kick things around, but whatever the Bible says, that's the last word. Two, there will be no criticism of churches. You're not criticizing your own church. You're not criticizing any other church. I will not tolerate it. So Jesus is not giving us some, some way of, or, or some license to go and slag off that which appears to be a little bit old-fashioned. The right way is to understand this is that, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is the new thing. God is doing a new thing. Jesus is that new thing. Life in the Spirit, that is a way to understand the new wine that can't be accommodated in the old wineskins. Another way to understand this is personal experience when we are born again. 2,000 years after the cross, when someone is born again, they receive new wine. They receive that life in the Spirit. They receive the forgiveness of sins. They go to the wedding. And that is a way to understand the new wine being received and the old wineskin having to be transformed and replaced. And another way I believe we can understand it is adapting and being flexible when God wants to do new things with us individually or corporately. And, and with this point, I'm, I'm drawn to a close. I think the greatest enemy to life in the Spirit is religion. The greatest enemy to life in the Spirit is religion. What is religion? Religion is, is external behavior rather than internal transformation. Religion is proudly carrying around burdens rather than laying them down at the feet of Jesus. Religion leads to slavery rather than freedom. Religion leads to death rather than life. Religion creates pride, arrogance, and spiritual blindness. Religion is a virus with a very high R value. It infects people. Jesus says it only takes a small amount of leaven or yeast to get through the whole batch of dough. It's a very contagious thing. And the Holy Spirit and the new wine on the one hand and the way we've always done things on the other hand will not work together. Religion does not want to make room for the Holy Spirit. Religion cannot handle the Spirit. Religion, I think I mentioned last week, cannot handle grace. Just can't handle it, can't deal with it. Jonah couldn't deal with the grace that God showed to the people of Nineveh. When he saw those people repent, he went and he took the huff. His religion did not have room to deal with the grace of God on these people. Religion cannot handle grace. It cannot handle Jesus. And it ruins what the Spirit is doing. I want you to notice this. Whenever Jesus says about the new garment being cut up to patch up the old one, the new garment is what he has come to offer. And if you cut it up to try to stick it on to religion, you actually ruin what he's bringing. It's not like you go to the new shirt with a pair of scissors and because the new shirt is so strong, the scissors can't cut it. It overcomes them. No, he says, if, if you try to do this, you will ruin the new thing. 
I'm bringing you a new garment. And there's a real risk that if you try to mix it with religion, you will ruin it. And he says about the wine into the old wineskins, he said, again, note please in, in verse 37, the wine is lost. The new wine is lost. It's not like you try to pour the new wine into the old wineskin and it miraculously doesn't go in. It does go in. And it breaks the wineskin and the new wine drops on the ground. Have you ever spilt something? That you really, really didn't want to spill. I spilled a latte one day. It was the most awful day. Oh, Nigel, would you quit? And I spilt it in the car, (laughs) which was was worse. Yes. Oh, everybody, everybody knows my pain. Oh my goodness, I had I had got a wee sneaky latte on the way into school because I was tired and I just needed a wee pick me up, and oh, all over the 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 carpet the mats of the car my goodness the new wine can you imagine that new wine of the kingdom and it just drops onto the dust and seeps away it's gone it's lost you understand religion can can ruin what god is doing can ruin it ponder that when we try to mix the new with the old we can wreck the new If you want to ruin what Jesus wants to do in your life or limit what he wants to do in your life, try to mix them up with your old mindsets because you'll just ruin it. And you might wonder why I'm so hard on religion because I go on about it a fair bit. Thinking about this this morning, I didn't have time just to to, to absolutely double check this, but I don't think Jesus ever called a demon-possessed person a child of the devil. But he called the religious people children of the devil in John 8. He says, you are of your father, the devil. That's what he said. Now that is a major, major statement. Who was he talking to when he talked about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? It was the religious people. Who was Stephen talking about in Acts 7 when he said about those who were stiff-necked, brittle, resisting the Spirit? It was the religious people who were about to murder him. So the reason I'm hard on it is because Jesus was exceptionally hard on it. He was never hard on a demon-possessed person. He delivered them and he set them free. But boy, he was hard on religion because he knew religion would wreck the new wine. Religion would damage the message of the kingdom. And whenever the spirit does move, religion can't handle it. The vessel breaks and usually causes collateral damage when it breaks and shatters everywhere. Whenever the spirit moves and the new wine is poured out, there will be, throughout Jesus' ministry, there are those religious ones in the background watching from a distance when the new wine comes in. Bang! (laughs) Again. Think about the apostles. We're nearly done. The need to be flexible. Do you understand why Paul, when you, when you read about, about Paul, he talks about 14 years in Arabia, I think it is, I can't remember, but he goes away for 14 years because his wineskin is so hard and it is so brittle. It takes that long for him to be able to, to, to get his head around what Jesus is doing with the new wine. Can you imagine if he hadn't been flexible? If he hadn't been supple enough to receive what God is doing. In Acts 16, Paul wants to go somewhere and the Spirit says, no, you're going to Macedonia. And if Paul hadn't been flexible, then he would not have met Lydia. 
He would not have been in the Philippian jail and we would not have the letter to the Philippians if Paul had not been flexible with what the Spirit was doing. If Peter had not been flexible in Acts chapter 10 with what the Spirit was doing, the gospel wouldn't have gone to Cornelius' house and therefore wouldn't have gone to the Gentile world. It's a good job Peter was flexible or we'd all be at home. In Acts chapter 8, if Philip hadn't been flexible, the gospel would not have gone to Africa. But because Philip was flexible and hopped onto a carriage with an Ethiopian eunuch and explained Isaiah to him, the gospel went to Africa. We need to be flexible. We need to be flexible. God needs a people who are supple and can contain the expansive new life that he is bringing. One of the things that religion does is it persecutes life in the spirit. There's a wee verse tucked away towards the end of Galatians 4 comparing Abraham's two sons, Ishmael born of the slave woman and Isaac born of the free woman. And Paul says, the son born according to the flesh, religion, legalism, externals, persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. Religion will always persecute spirit. It will always spill the new wine on the ground. How do you keep the wineskins supple? Well, according to those who know a bit more about wineskins than me, you soak it in water. You just soak it in water. And what two things in the Bible does water represent over and over again? There's the washing of water by the Word, and there's the living water of the Spirit. You keep the wineskin supple by steeping it in the Word and in the Spirit. If you ever, if anyone ever asks you, sometimes I get asked, why, why are we reading that Bible story again? Why are you reading it again? You know it. You know the story of this or that. Why are you reading it again? I'm keeping the wineskin supple. I'll read it again and again and again and again and again because it keeps the wineskin supple. If I stop soaking myself in the water of the word, I'll get brittle. And when the spirit moves to do a new thing, I'll break. And the same with life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. The moment those things become of secondary importance to us, we start to become brittle. And the new wine breaks us. We need to stay flexible, church, so that Jesus can do what he wants to do through us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.